Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. First John 4, 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loves us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of this world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is also a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of God. Good morning, family of God. Before I say anything else today, I would like to say thank you. And I have 10,000 things to thank God for, but right now I want to thank God for you, church family, and I want to thank you directly for uh, the gift of a sabbatical. Most of you know this is my first post-sabbatical sermon, first Sunday after the sabbatical is over. And uh, hey, thanks for the welcome, Joel. Uh, it's good to be back. I was actually here sitting right there the whole time, but it's good to be back here. Um, so I do thank you. I don't take it for granted at all to have a church family that uh, loves your pastoral staff enough to give us time like that. And uh, the last four months have been profoundly helpful and healing and restorative for my soul as I've had a lot of time to pray, to study the scriptures, to read a lot of books, to write a lot and to spend some wonderful time with family. So thank you. I want to especially thank our four elders and our church ministry staff because me not being here did not make all the work go away. So they all shouldered an extra burden during this time, especially Chauncey Shiloh uh, shouldered a big burden. So can you join me in expressing appreciation for them? Thanks, everybody. During those four months... One of the things that I was doing was studying the biblical doctrine of God's love. I really, really, for my own soul, want to understand what does it mean to say that God loves me. And I want this for several reasons. Of course, that's in some ways the most basic, simple Christian truth, right? When I was a kid, before almost anything else I learned, I learned to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so, right? So, to be a Christian is to believe Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins and rose again because God loves us. And yet, this is also the most deep Christian truth that we get to spend the whole rest of our lives understanding and finding out what did it really mean when we were kids to sing Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. 
In his letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul prays for the church in Ephesus that the Holy Spirit would give them supernatural power and the core of their being to understand increasingly what does it mean that God loves them. So we never grow out of that need to understand what does it mean that God loves us. And as a matter of fact, we could sum up the Christian life with the journey to ever increasingly live into the truth that God loves us and let that truth shape us so that we learn to love God and love other people. So that dwelling on that thought and trying to pray and study and read the Bible and read a whole bunch of books from Bible scholars and saints and theologians throughout the centuries over the last four months has been incredibly healing and restoring for my soul. And now as I've been back for a couple of days and talking to some of our other leaders about what should we do the rest of the team just finished a great sermon series on First Peter. In ten weeks, we've got Advent. So that leaves nine weeks. What should we do on Sundays um, during that time period? And we decided, let's just spend nine weeks studying God's love. Doesn't that sound a good way to finish 2021? We need to study God's love for nine weeks and then have Christmas before we get out of this year. So that's what we're going to do. And we're going to start by zooming in to one of the most beautiful Descriptions of God's love in the Bible from 1 John 4. And mostly I'm going to talk about verse 16. Look at that verse with me one more time. It says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. That verse is kind of like the whole Christian message in a nutshell. And I'm going to especially focus on two little phrases. For most of our sermon, I'm going to talk about these three words. Everybody say, God is love. And for the last little bit of the sermon, I'm going to reflect on these three words. Everybody repeat after me, abide in love. Before we dig in, I want to invite you to bow your heads with me one more time. And where you are, would you just cry out to the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart and mind today? And then I'm going to say a prayer for us. Our Father, I ask for the help of your Holy Spirit now. Would you strengthen us to understand the gospel, to understand with our minds what it means that you love us, to believe that in our heart, and let that truth so deeply transform us, Lord, that we would rest in your love, that we would surrender to your love in a way that will... Heal us, God, and transform us and empower us for your glory by your grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Without further ado, let's talk about our, our first big phrase. Let's say it again. God is love. John wants to get our attention with this phrase. That's why he uses it twice. Verse 8 says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And then verse 16 we already read. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. He repeats that phrase. He uses it twice. And the phrase itself is kind of a shocking, surprising phrase. The Bible doesn't usually talk like this. When the Bible makes indicative statements about God, it usually uses adjectives, not nouns. In other words, the Bible says God is just a lot of times, but it doesn't usually say stuff like God is justice. Hear the difference? The Bible says God is almighty, but it doesn't say God is power. The Bible says God is holy, but the Bible doesn't often say things like God is holiness. You tracking with me? It's a difference between an adjective and a noun. Now, the Bible says God is good. It doesn't say he's goodness. We could keep going on and on. Now, there's a, we want to clarify from the beginning. There's a certain sense in which it is absolutely true to say God is goodness itself. God is justice itself. We could say that. That's true. And sometimes, besides here, the Bible talks like that. It says God is spirit. It says God is light. But the Bible rarely uses that kind of phrase. And here John uses it twice in a short period of time. God is love. I'm not just saying God is loving or that sometimes God acts in loving ways. 
John is saying God's character is love. God's nature is love so that everything God says is love. And everything God does is an expression of love. God's character and nature are unchanging and perfect, which means God always has been perfectly loving. And right now, whatever you're feeling today, God perfectly loves you. You hear that? And whatever's going to happen tomorrow, have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow, much less in 2022 or in 2042 or in 2242. Have no idea. But I do know this. God will perfectly be loving still then because God is love. Most of all, John wants to speak to your personal experience as a Christian about your relationship with God and wants to say, Christian, before the foundation of the world, God loved you. And God has sovereignly been at work throughout history so that all of cosmic history, God has been orchestrating to make you perfectly happy forever. Did you hear that? Think about that for a second. For all of history, since before the creation of the world to now and into the future, God as king has been reigning over the flow of the stream of human history for the goal of making you perfectly happy forever. That's part of what it's saying. And you, it's not just you though. Look at your neighbor, your brother or sister in the pew. That person, you might not have known how important they were, but for all of cosmic history, God has been orchestrating the flow of history to make that brother or sister perfectly happy forever. Isn't that an amazing thought? And God's love is going to continue working in history till Jesus returns and set all things right. But at this point, before we go any further, we need to pause and identify a certain danger. When we say over and over, God is love, and as a matter of fact, we might as well say it one more time. Everybody say, God is love. The danger is that we're going to hear that phrase, and then we're going to take that word love, and we're going to fill in our understanding of that word with our own confused ideas about what love is, and then say, that is God, and we'll end up trusting and believing and worshiping an idol, a fantasy, an unreality. Anybody want to worship a fantasy? No. Then we need to stop and think, because have you noticed, if you turn on Top 40 radio station, there's a lot of songs about love, and it's a little confusing. You don't necessarily want to worship what they're talking about. I'll give you two examples. One, here's an example from my personal experience. One of the things that makes me feel most loved is when people affirm me. I feel loved when people say, John Mark, you did good. John Mark, you are so right. I'm glad you said that. Well done, John Mark. I feel loved. Anybody else like to get affirmed? One of the things that doesn't usually make me feel loved is the opposite of that. John Mark, what you said was wrong. John Mark, that was really selfish. I feel loved by unconditional affirmation. But even in human relationships, sometimes the people who love me most are the people who care enough to say, John Mark, what you did is, is wrong. And if you keep in that direction, it's going to cause problems in your life. John Mark, you're believing something that isn't true. You need to let the truth of God change you from the inside out. In other words, real love loves me enough to tell me what I don't want to hear sometimes, right? Committed to my life and my well-being. And if I say God is love, and what I mean by that is unconditional affirmation of everything I think and do and say and feel and all my desires, then I'm going to end up worshiping an idol. And listen, this idol will not be better than the real God. Can you imagine if we all went around convinced all the time that the essence of God is unconditional affirmation of everything I think and want and say and do. That means every time you disagree with me, that's blasphemy. We would be fighting each other tooth and nail. That God would not be worth worshiping. Thankfully, that God does not exist. Here's another example. You could think about young children. I've had several of those over the last decade of my life. And... As they're growing up, there's a fun stage that they pass through. That One of mine is in there right now. This kind of toddler stage where they have learned to walk and they have learned to run and they have learned to climb. Problem-solving skills are developing. So that thing that used to be safe on the counter, now they know how to push the chair to the counter and climb up and get it, right? And they're discovering their God-given freedom and relative autonomy and they love it. And they're having fun exploring God's good world. But they don't have a lot of wisdom yet. And so... Very often as a parent, 
or a caretaker, you can find yourself in the situation that a child discovers something like a marble. And the child is holding on to the marble. And the child loves the marble. It's God's gift to the child to make the child happy, right? And now, now you see that child and you know if this 19-month-old is holding this marble, within a few seconds, where is it going to be? It's going to be in the mouth. And from there it goes, best case scenario, esophagus. Maybe air passageway. Maybe it's in hell, right? And now if you love the child, you're looking and you're thinking, That's, that could actually kill the human being. That could kill the child. And so you go up. Love compels you to go to the child and get down on your knee and say, thank you for the marble. And sometimes the child trusts you love enough that they do what my current 20-month-old often does, Silas. He hands you the marble, puts it in your hand. But that is not always what happens. Sometimes what happens is the child thinks, God loves me and gave me this good gift. How dare you? try to interfere with God's good gift to me, turns and runs and puts the marble in the mouth so you can't get it, right? So the child's running away and you got to chase the kid down and you got to grab the kid. you got to stick your fingers in his mouth. you got to pry the jaws open. The child is biting you actively. You pull it out of your mouth and the next thing out of the kid's mouth is not, thank you so much for loving me so steadfastly. What they're saying with whatever vocabulary they got me is, I'm being oppressed, right? Injustice. This is not love. But if we think God's love is let me enjoy whatever gifts come my way, however I want to, and follow my desires and hold on to whatever I want to hold on to and tell me I'm always right, we're going to worship an idol. And like all idols, if you give your life to that, it'll actually destroy you, though you think it might make you free. So we want to worship the true God. We want to know what his love really means. Thomas Merton was a Trappist monk who became a well-known spiritual writer in the 20th century and one of his books called Thoughts in Solitude starts with a good sentence. Let me read this sentence to you. He says, there is no greater disaster in the spiritual life than to be immersed in unreality. Do you believe that? There's no greater disaster in the spiritual life than to be immersed in unreality. For life is maintained and nourished in us by our vital relation with realities outside and above us. If you want to live, you've got to learn how to feast on truth, not feast on Air. As a matter of fact, the first few verses of 1 John chapter 4, which we did not read, are 1 John, uh, is John saying to people, don't test every spirit. Listen, a lot of people have spiritual experiences that are very real and very spiritual, but they're leading you to death and destruction and falsehood, not to truth and life. Which is why John says, if you want to know the truth that will set you free, you've got to look at the truth in Jesus Christ. So, if we want to know what the phrase, God is love, means, everybody say, God is love. We need to root our understanding of God's love in the story of Jesus. Let's look for a second at verses 9 and 10. We've got to understand verses 9 and 10 if we want to understand what those three words, God is love, mean. Let's read them one more time. In this, the love of God was made manifest. Please circle that word manifest in your bulletin. We're going to come back to it. And this, the love of God, was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son. Everybody say, that's Jesus. God sent his only son into the world. The way God revealed his love, manifested his love, showed his love, is by sending Jesus. To do what? He sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. That is a huge word, too. Everybody circle that word, live. Jesus came to give us life. Verse 10 and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. That's a big, hard word. I'll circle that one. Propitiation for our sins. Now, let me point out to you two key truths in verse 9 and two key truths in verse 10. Verse 9, key truth number one. The love of God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the love of God is revealed to us most fully in the sending of Jesus. Which means if you want to know what God's eternal love is and what the Bible is talking about when it says God is love, don't open your dictionary, don't Google what is love. Instead, open your Bible to the gospel and read the stories of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what you, read, what you discover as you fix your eyes on this man, Jesus, is that God's Love is walking around these 
dusty streets of Galilee, acting in ways that are powerful and beautiful and redemptive and surprising and sometimes shocking and every now and then a little bit offensive, but they're always better than what we might have imagined love would be. So Jesus sees hungry people and he feeds them. Jesus sees sick people and he heals them. He sees people in spiritual bondage and he drives out the the darkness. He drives out the devil. Sometimes, though, Jesus says to his closest disciple, get behind me, Satan. Sometimes Jesus says to the religious leaders of the day, you brood of vipers. Sometimes he's a little offensive and wild, but the love of God can be a little offensive and wild. Do you hear what I'm saying? But this leads to our second point. Second point from verse 9 is Jesus came, the Son came, so that we could have life. Everybody say life. When Jesus acts in ways that we think are nice, he does it to give us life. And when he acts in ways that bother us, he does it to give us life. See that? Sometimes God's love feels to us like it feels to your toddler when you pick your toddler up and hug him and sing a song and feed him. And sometimes it feels to us like your love feels to your toddler when you're prying the marble out of their mouth. Sometimes God's love doesn't feel loving at all to us, but it's always for our life. Think about what Jesus said in John. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. He wants to give you all of the gifts of natural life. Physical flourishing and health and joy and peace. All those things are from him. And especially he wants to give you the eternal, infinite bliss of supernatural life. That is relationship with God only Knowing God can bring us ultimate peace and joy and satisfaction in life. Amen. The reason he wants to give you temporal gifts and blessings is because he loves you. But those are the same reasons sometimes he withholds those blessings and even leads you into experiences you really don't like. Because God loves you and wants to give you every natural gift of life, very often you pray to be healed and you get healed. Anybody prayed to be healed and be healed this year? Anybody ever prayed for God to help you pay your bills and your bills got paid? Anybody ever prayed for a family member to thrive or to get a job or any little temporal blessing and God did it? Somebody say God is good. He does those things because he loves us. He wants to give us life, which means if he chooses not to do it, he knows that not having that little temporal blessing is going to allow us to experience an eternal blessing beyond what we can imagine. And sometimes that bothers us, which is part of the reason why abiding in God's love turns out to be a bigger deal than we might have thought at first. Two key truths in verse 9. The love of God is most revealed in the sending of Jesus, and Jesus came to give us life. All the gifts of natural and supernatural life. Now, verse 10 has two key truths. First, God took the initiative in this love relationship with us. If you want to know what love is, don't look at us loving God or loving one another. Look at God coming to us to love us. God started it. God took the initiative, which means God's love is not responding to our goodness. God's love is creating our goodness. Did you hear that? The 16th century German reformer, Martin Luther, and the medieval theologian philosopher Thomas Aquinas, both spent a lot of time contrasting God's love from all human love like this. They said, all human love is responding to something that's already good. It already exists outside of you. By the way, that's true even when God's love teaches you to love your enemy. Because your enemy is more than just your enemy, right? Your enemy is, before that, a human being created in the image of God, which means they're intrinsically valuable and beautiful. So God's love for me on the cross might have taught me to love my enemy despite them being their enemy. But I'm also always already responding to them because they're valuable and beautiful and good. Human love is always responsive in some way. You hear that? But God's love isn't like that. God loved you before you existed. There was nothing to love yet. And then God's love loved you into being. He created you. And then when you rebelled against God and ran away from God and you took the good thing that he had made that was your own self and messed it up. God's love came to you in grace to restore what you had broken to make you beautiful. Not because you were already beautiful. After contrasting these two loves, Martin Luther summed it up like this. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. 
The love of God does not find, but create that which is pleasing to it. God doesn't love you because you're so pretty. God loves you, and that's what makes you pretty. You hear that? Aquinas says, the love of God infuses and creates goodness. It's not finding and responding to it. This is so important because many of us go through our daily lives thinking we need to be good and pleasing and beautiful first, and then God will love us. I need to get my life sorted out first, and then I can know God will love me. And this is saying, no, that's not how it works. God loves you because God is love. And God has freely chosen to love you from all eternity. And because God loves you despite your unworthiness, one day you will be worthy. You hear that? Second key truth from verse 10. The cross is the focal point of God's self-revelation as love. We've said God reveals himself most fully in the story of Jesus. And now we're saying, and especially through the cross of Jesus. Which means, actually I'm going to not finish that sentence yet. Look back at verse 10. You see that word propitiation? That's a fun word to say. Maybe I'll have you repeat it just so I can hear you try to say it. Everybody say propitiation. Now that's a word with a lot of background and we could say very simply it speaks about a substitutionary sacrifice in which Jesus bore our sin and all of its consequences on the cross, including the consequence of God's own holy justice and love coming as a warrior to defeat our sin and evil. And yet God himself is bearing the brunt of that. Now, I thought about how to explain this. And if, if I had time to really dig deep into the concept of propitiation, we would be here all day. So instead of going into all that right now, I I'm, hope to come back to it in a few weeks. I'm just going to tell you a picture I had in my mind this week as I was thinking about this word propitiation. Here's the picture I had. Don't stretch this an allegory very far because it won't work even very far. I'm just telling you a picture in my head that helped me. The picture was I was standing out in my front yard in the driveway, but there's nobody else in the neighborhood. And I was standing there and I've done something wrong, bad. It doesn't matter what it was. I thought something wrong or I said something wrong or I did something wrong that violated God's law. It was evil and it hurt other people. And I knew in the core of my being there was going to be a consequence that was big and huge that was coming. And then I started looking around and I grew up in Texas, then came to Oklahoma. So when I think of big, powerful, destructive forces, what do I think of coming through the sky? Tornadoes. So I started looking around in my neighborhood and I started seeing, whoa, here's a tornado. I don't take this lightly, friends, like some of y'all I grew up and both as a kid and as an adult know what it's like to be hiding in the closet. We're trying to get to a storm shelter and waiting and listening. Is it going to come over us? Also, like some of you, I know what it's like to go do cleanup after an F5 tornado comes through Moore or Oklahoma City or Norman. And you see the total devastation. So here's the picture. I did something wrong and I know fury is about to be unleashed on me that I deserve. And I look up and I see a tornado F5. And then I look over here and I see another one. And I turn that way and I see another. And I'm surrounded by ten of these things. And they're all coming right at me. Doesn't make sense meteorologically. It doesn't have to. Okay? They're all coming right at me. Can I run in the house? Doesn't matter. This house is going to be gone in one minute. Can I get in the car and drive away? There's nowhere to go. I'm surrounded. I brought this on myself. I'm looking around. I'm thinking I'm about to get ripped into shreds. And then I see somebody. Guess who it is? It's Jesus. And here's the thing about Jesus. Here's the mystery of the incarnation. He's standing there. And he is, because he's Jesus, fully God and fully human, which means at one and the same time, he is infinitely powerful. Stronger than any tornado shelter or bunker. And really human, which means vulnerable and mortal at the same time. Right now, I'm not doing the philosophical thing of trying to explain how the incarnation works. I'm just saying at this moment, I don't care how. I'm just glad to see somebody infinitely powerful who's here with me, right? And he looks at me and he walks over and he embraces me. And here's the vivid thing I had in my imagination this week. He embraces me. Then I feel him, feel us kind of going down. And I'm all curled up in a ball as they're coming now 10 seconds away. And he's over me. I can't see what's happening. My eyes are closed. I'm huddled up in a ball. And he's over me completely. I don't know what he's holding on to because I can't see. My eyes are closed. Maybe his fingers are down in the concrete. 
Maybe the world's holding on to him. Maybe he's not holding on to the world. But I'm there and it's dark and I'm listening and I hear the rumble and the shaking. I hear the metal and the crashing and the ripping. It all lasts for a couple of minutes and it's over. And then I feel his weight fall off of me to the side and I stand up. Here's the thing about the incarnation. This God man is God, so he can, he's stronger than anything, but he's vulnerable and he's mortal. And I stand up and he's laying there. He's been beaten black and blue. He's been ripped to shreds and he's laying dead there. And because of that, I'm alive. That's propitiation. Everybody say propitiation. Now, the good news of the gospel is Jesus came back to life. Amen. He's alive today. But right now, John is saying, if you want to know what love is like, you brought down all the forces of hell. You unleashed evil. You invited God's judgment. And yet God himself came and took it for you. God himself and the person of Jesus Christ endured sin and death and damnation so that you would have to, so that you could be infinitely happy with God forever. I told you I was going to wait to finish my sentence. Here's the, the rest of the sentence. The cross is the focal point of God's self-revelation as love, which means there is no limit to how far God is willing to go, go to make you happy. Infinitely happy, infinitely joyful forever to give you life. The thing about that statement is there are limits to how far you are willing to go to make you happy. There are limits to how far I'm willing to go to make me happy. You might think, I don't know about that. I mean, I'm pretty selfish, but because of that, I'm good at pursuing my own happiness. Wait a minute. I've had the experience sometimes that it's lunchtime, and I'm looking at a salad and a brownie. I know which one is going to make me happy in a few hours. Which one's going to make me happy in a few months? And yet, I'm not willing to pay that price. There are limits to how far I'm willing to go to make myself Happy. So I eat the brownie. You, you know this, right? Some of you this week had a, a night where you knew if I'm committed to my own life and joy and flourishing, I'm going to say my prayers and go to sleep. But instead, you watch Netflix till two o'clock in the morning and your family and your job and your soul paid the price for the next three days. Amen. There are limits to how far you are willing to go to pursue your own life and happiness, but there are no limits to how far God is willing to go to pursue your life and your happiness. Everybody say, God is love. Practically, that means God is more committed to you being happy than you are. Our problem is not, as C.S. Lewis put it, our problem is not that we're too committed to our own happiness. Our problem is that we're too easily satisfied. God wants to give us joys beyond what we can imagine. One more thing to say before I take a few minutes to talk about our second phrase. Go back to that word manifested. I told you we were going to talk about that word. The word, I want you to think about that word manifested from verse 9 and how it relates to our phrase, God is love. Now, the word manifested could also be translated revealed. Everybody say revealed. Both of these words are the opposite of hidden. So to say that God's love was manifested or revealed like this seems to imply what scripture elsewhere makes quite explicit, that sometimes God's love is hidden. Sometimes you can see God's love and sometimes you can't see God's love. That's a biblical truth and a theological truth, but you don't need me to tell you that because you already know it experientially, don't you? Job did not feel loved by God. But what this text is leading us to understand is that sometimes God's love is revealed to us and sometimes God is hidden from us. But the love of God that was revealed through Jesus and especially through his cross is the same love that God always is. Which means he's always loving us that much and he's always loving us like that even when we can't see it. And even when we can't fill it. Now, to plumb the depths of that statement is going to push us to a lot of things like the doctrine of the Trinity. God eternally ever is love as the Father loves the Son and the Son delights in the Father and the self-giving embrace of the Holy Spirit. This is the doctrine of God. It also leads us to think to some doctrines that are meant for our 
comfort, like the doctrine of predestination, which some of you, as soon as I say that word, you go into an existential crisis about determinism and free will. But here's what it means. Before God made the world, God loved you. And he's been orchestrating all of cosmic history to make you happy forever. Isn't that a good doctrine? Even if we can't understand it? Being told here is that the love revealed on the cross is always there even when you can't see it and even when you can't feel it, so that the great 19th century evangelical preacher, Charles Simeon, after a beautiful, stirring, moving reflection on God's love, made this statement about the implication for our spiritual life. He says, we must be content to consider the darkest of God's dispensations as fruits of his love. Here's what he meant. Simeon had gone through a lot of rejection and a lot of failure and a lot of pain. And he said those moments, just as much as the moments of of glory and success, were God's love to me. That's what I've got to learn to see. Everybody say, God is love. Now let's talk about how do we respond to that reality. Let's take a few minutes thinking about these wonderful words, abide in love. How do we respond to the truth of God's love? Well, we're called to abide. Everybody say, abide in love. That word abide is an important word. If you searched your ESV Bible, you would find it's used 36 times and 27 of them come from the pen of John. He likes this word. Now, I did something this week, which is that I went to my office and I got off my big, nerdy, scholarly Greek theological dictionaries and opened up to study this Greek word. I was really just trying to do my pastoral due diligence because you're supposed to know what the Greek word means. I didn't expect to learn very much, but I'm so glad I did it because this is an awesome word, y'all. This word abide. Everybody say it one more time. Say abide. The word abide here, this Greek word, the basic meaning is to remain in a place. To remain in a place. So there's two ideas here. One of them is the idea of permanence as opposed to temporariness. Permanence rather than temporariness. The other idea is that it usually has to do with a place where you live, your dwelling, your home. Remain in a place. Stay put in love. So the King James Version translates this. He that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. The Net Bible says the one who resides in love resides in God and God resides in him. NIV says whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. The Contemporary Standard Bible says the one who remains in love remains in God and God remains in him. What they're all trying to get us to see is this. The verse suggests that God intends his holy, liberating, transforming presence to make its home in you like the Shekinah glory of God made its home in the temple in the Old Testament, but more so. And God intends for you to make your home, your perfect, uh, your permanent dwelling place in God so that all of life, not just little religious slices of life, but every moment of every day becomes a joy-filled act of sacred worship. That's what God desires for you. How do you get there? The way that you get there is that you choose to move into God's love as your house. Do you hear that? You choose to move into God's love as your house. Now, remember, it's a place where you're supposed to stay, but the idea is permanence. We're not talking about visiting God's love. Do you hear the difference? The text is not saying God's love is a very nice hotel. And every year I want you to go stay at the hotel called God's love for two weeks. It'll be very refreshing to your soul. And then you go live somewhere else. God's love is not being compared to an Airbnb or a Verbo or whatever. That you go stay for a few days here or a month there. What the text is saying is... John, and the Holy Spirit speaking through John, is saying, some of you here today need to sell your house where you live. You live in this place called insecurity. Or you live in this place called fear. Or you live in this place called selfishness. Or you live in this place called anxiety. Or you live in this place called performance, where every day you're trying to be really good so that mom will be happy and dad will be happy and God will be happy and... You're working really hard. And on good days, you feel kind of good for a while. And on bad days, you feel really bad. Some of y'all live in a house like that. And John is saying, sell your house. And when you sell your house, 
Call all your friends and get a U-Haul truck. Don't leave anything at that house. If you got three keys, give them all to the new owner. Better that, just burn the house down, right? Don't keep a key. Put all your stuff in your new U-Haul truck. Call Kent and Jerry to come help you carry things. Move to your new house. When you get there, unload the stuff. Send your change of address form to the post office. You hear what I'm saying? Right now, the Holy Spirit may be saying to some of you, you need to fill out your change of address form today and send it to the post office. Anxiety is not where you're supposed to dwell. Performance is not where you're supposed to dwell. Fear is not where you're supposed to dwell. Trying to check, check off your religious checklist enough so that God will be happy with you is not where you're supposed to live. Trying to check off your domestic checklist enough so that your partner will feel happy with you so that you can feel like you're a good Christian is not where you're supposed to live. Do you hear that? Trying to really hard to crank out the feeling of God's love for you is not where you're supposed to live. That's still performance. Listen, some of you, I've been talking right now and your heart has been strangely warmed by God's grace. But a lot of you, I'm talking right now and you feel nothing. You don't feel like God loves you. And so you're thinking, I must not even be saved. But here's the thing. You may not feel like God loves you, but it's okay because he loves you even when you don't feel like it. You hear what I'm saying? You don't live in, I got to feel good to be spiritual house. The house that you're supposed to move into is the love of God. So everybody say, abide in love. That's a powerful little metaphor. Now the question is, what does it look like in practice? The immediate context suggests Abiding in love means knowing and it means two things, two things. First, knowing and believing God's love for us as it has been revealed in Jesus. And when I say knowing it, that's intellectual. God, illumine my mind with your truth. Help me to have new thoughts that replace the old thoughts. If you want to turn in your change of address form at the post office, what that means is I have to take responsibility for the scripts running through my head all day that are robbing me of peace and joy. And I need to all day... Feed my mind with Bible verses that say a thousand variations of God is love. You hear that? So it means intellectually, but it doesn't just mean intellectually know that God loves you. It means experientially. It means learning to live as if God loves you until one day maybe you'll fill it by his grace. Second, abiding in love means Letting that truth of God so dwell in us that it transforms us until we begin to reflect God's love or to become channels for God's love. We learn to love other people like God loved us, and we learn to do it in the nitty-gritty of daily life. As a matter of fact, if we had more time to study every verse in this passage, which we don't, I'm almost done. But if we did, we could go through and show some parallels. One of the things this passage is doing is showing you what's the mark of a true Christian. And if we studied it carefully, we could say this. A true Christian is a person who confesses the truth about Jesus. And another verse would say, a true Christian is a person who abides in God's love. And another verse would say, a true Christian is a, ver a person who's filled with the Holy Spirit. And another verse would say, a true Christian is one that loves other people. So all of us can pick our hobby horse. And the activist Christian can say, look, if you're really a Christian, you're out there loving the vulnerable and sharing the gospel and fighting oppression. And the doctrinal Christian could say, if you're really a Christian, you're studying your Bible and getting the truth right. And the experiential Christian could be like, no, man, let's just light some candles and pray. You know what I'm saying? But guess what? They're all right. They're all right. And that's really all saying one thing. By the power of the Holy Spirit, feast on the truth about Jesus Christ so that you can abide in his love and you can learn how to love people in daily life. Now, I have had an experience even a few times on my sabbatical that maybe some of you can relate to, which is, you read your Bible and you pray and you're having, you know, a lot of spiritual battles with the devil and with God. And all of a sudden, the truth of the gospel sinks into your heart and a peace overwhelms you and a joy that is never going to leave you again for the rest of your life. And you come home from your mountain and then the problem is all the other people are still there. Right. I joked with Candace over the course of the sabbatical that as I went on prayer retreats, I was exploring my monastic vocation and she replied you don't have a monastic vocation but if you want to go on a monastic vacation i will support you and so i went on several of those and as i was praying and spending time with god i got filled up with his love and then you come back and all the other people don't know how to act right you know what i'm saying and sometimes it's like oh good thing i've been with jesus all this time because i'm gonna respond with love so i start responding to do the right thing to these other people and what they do is they get mad and misunderstand me and think 
oh, no, he doesn't really love us. And they start attacking me like they did to Jesus. And now it's kind of like, oh, you think that was sin? I'm going to show you some real sin. And before long, I'm just being really grumpy and rude. Right. And then I'm very disappointed. Like, man, the prairie retreat didn't work. But but here's the, how the, how the Christian life works. We go back and forth to sitting at the feet of Jesus and gazing at the face of Jesus and hearing the truth of the gospel. Then we go back into the nitty gritty of loving our neighbors. And in that dance, that rhythm back and forth, the Holy Spirit changes us and we become free. Some of you want me to give you a checklist about how to do this. And I thought about it. Then I decided, no, because here's what you need to hear. Abiding in love is not a checklist. It's not a to-do list, but I will summarize it with two words with which we're going to conclude today. First word is the word rest. Everybody say rest. Some of you came in here carrying heavy burdens, and it's even appropriate that you should. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for theirs is the king, uh, for they shall be comforted. Although first Peter told us, what are we supposed to do with those burdens? Cast them on Jesus. So what I want to say is the world is not okay, but it's going to be okay because God is love so you can rest. Evil and darkness may surround us, but they will not prevail because God is love so you can rest. Your soul may be a mess right now. But the God who has awakened a hunger for righteousness in your soul will certainly satisfy that hunger because God is love. So you can rest. Those of you that listen to the whole sermon and you still don't feel like God loves you, it's okay. He loves you no matter what you feel like. You can rest. What I'm trying to say is relax, family. God has got this. Every turn your neighbor say relax. This is a theological invitation to do what we used to in the 90s call chill out. Julian of Norwich, a medieval uh, saint, Christian sister who devoted her life to prayer, went through an experience of tremendous physical and spiritual agony. And part of that experience was basically staring into the deep, dark pit of sin and hell and then crying out to Jesus How could this be here and you be love? How do those two go together? And through the midst of the pain that she experienced, she asked Jesus a lot of questions. Explain to me how both of those things can be true. And in her account of what happened, Jesus really didn't answer most of her questions. But she did. Jesus did say this. All shall be well. And all shall be well. And all manner of things shall be well. He showed her the cross and he told her, my love that was revealed at the cross is going to keep going until I return and everything is set right. So all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. You may say that's easy for you to say, but I just want to tell you, saints, it's not easy for me to say and it wasn't easy for Julian to say. That conviction can only be birthed at the end of a long and torturous labor. But Julian trusted Christ. She believed that word and awakened for her a joy and a peace. But that experience may start alerting some of us to the fact that resting may be more challenging than it seems. So here's your second word. Everybody say surrender. Rest and surrender. To learn how to rest, you have to surrender to God's loving care for you. You have to surrender to God's loving plan for you. You have to acknowledge not only that God is in control, but also that it's a very good thing that God is in control and you are not. This means choosing to trust God and his wisdom instead of trusting in yourself and your wisdom. It means fighting against the addiction to perhaps the most addictive of all drugs, which is our addiction to self-determination. I get to choose who I am. And what I am in the course of my life. Truly surrendering to God's love may feel like death to us. But it is a death that surely leads to resurrection. And the fruit of that rest and that surrender is a soul that has been made whole. The fruit of that rest and surrender was described beautifully by St. Augustine in 
a sermon on First John 4. And he said this. One last word picture before I sit down. Imagine your soul like a garment that has been ripped by your sin. A shirt or a pair of jeans that have been ripped. Your soul has been ripped by your sin. And God is coming to heal you. Now, for a lot of us, the, the start of our spiritual journey is the recognition, I'm a big sinner and God is holy and I'm in trouble. We start to be afraid of punishment, but if all goes well, that leads us to the cross. And at the cross, we find a God of forgiveness and a God of mercy and love. And St. Augustine, reflecting on the end of our text today, which talks about God's perfect love driving out our fear, says, that fear of punishment is like a needle that God's going to use to sew you back up together, but the thread is God's love. So here's how it works. At the beginning of your spiritual life, you started recognizing what a big sinner you were, and you were in trouble, and you went to the cross, and that felt like getting pierced. But at the cross, you found a loving Savior, and He said, trust in me, and you'll be forgiven. And you did, and you got baptized, and now there's one stitch in your soul. And then you keep messing up and you keep struggling and you go through a lot of life feeling like God's not pleased with you. And you keep feeling the prick of that needle because God is still sewing you up. But this is a process of healing and there's going to come a time in which God perfects you in his love. And here's the way that you will know. You have come to see the cross of Jesus so clearly and to experience the healing power of the cross so deeply that all those threads have gone in, your soul is whole, and the needle got thrown away. No more needle. Just God's love holding you together. My prayer is that over the next nine weeks, God is going to help all of us become closer to that reality. So please bow your heads with me. Let's prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's Supper. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for your grace. pray that your Holy Spirit would take these truths of Scripture and get them deep into our hearts, shine the light into our minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.